Okay, I guess we'll get started. It's a very scarce crowd on a Friday morning in September. Apparently, Labor Day weekend is still going to be taken, even though we are supposed to not have it as a holiday. People are, are taking a break. There's six of us out of 16 today. That's probably not, not a huge number. So, anybody tell me where this picture is? Split Rock Lighthouse. And how do you know this? Because you were there a couple of weeks ago. Excellent. Did you walk down to the lakeshore to look back up at it? Kind of a nice place, but you can see why they have a lighthouse because you wouldn't want to run your boat into those rocks. It would be uh, quite unfortunate for your boat and probably you. Okay, so now I have to find some slides about what happens to milk lipids when we start to actually undergo dairy processes. So process interactions involving the milk lipids. We've talked about lipids in a broader sense, the fatty acid attachments creating primarily triglycerides we do have mono and diglycerides, phospholipids, cholesterol, sphingolipids, all sorts of other minor components. But now we're gonna talk about them in a, in a more general sense as to what happens to those lipids as we begin to do dairy process. So one of the things that we definitely do in the dairy industry is we heat things, we heat almost every product that we make. Why? Unless we're going to use a membrane system to uh, try and remove all the microflora to make it a stable system without any bacteria, our other option typically is to use heat through pasteurizing to kill microorganisms. We do that to increase the overall shelf life and stability of our finished dairy food. But along the way, that heat is going to cause several reactions and interactions in the different components that make up milk. So first off, we're going to talk about the lipids. Lipids do not have a distinct melting point. We talked about that based on their fatty acid profile. The more variety in fatty acids, the more broad the range is as far as when the lipids begin to soften or firm up. Taking that into account, as we increase the heat, we do not necessarily create a system where all of the fatty acids, all of the triglycerides are truly liquid, but we create a system where more and more of them move from their semi-solid state to the liquid state 
which decreases the overall viscosity of the solution or allows the solution to flow more readily. That's gonna be important as we pump something. If the viscosity goes down, it changes our ability to pump, to move the fluid around. As the viscosity goes down, it potentially can increase our ability to get heat energy into and back out of the solution. So because of the variable melting points in the fatty acids, we get a viscosity change in our solution without necessarily getting to the point where every single one of those fatty acids is truly a liquid. When you heat most substances, they will expand. You excite the atomic structure, the atoms, the electrons move out to upper shells. The overall space that any individual atom takes up increases. But the rate at which that occurs is not uniform. Different substances expand at different rates. Based on the way those triglycerides were initially formed, the structure, whether it's in a chair structure or a pitchfork structure, short chain or long chain fatty acids, that original density, the more dense the fat was in the beginning, the slower it's going to expand. If it was already a fairly large fat globule to begin with, it's going to expand more rapidly when we put heat in there. What that does for us, when we heat and we expand those fat globules, we make them larger and less dense when we put them through a separator, a centrifugal separator, when we spin them, the density gradient or the difference between the density of the serum phase and the density of the lipid phase is greater. The greater the difference in the density, the easier the separation is. We can separate milk fat from milk serum cold. We can separate milk fat from milk serum more efficiently warm because of the expansion of the individual triglycerides when heated. So that's going to be an important thing for us to improve our efficiencies and our effectiveness in our process. When we consider unhomogenized fluids, ones that have not been treated to any sort of process to make all the particles more uniform in size, when we have a large gradient or difference in particle size, 
those larger particles initially expand more, they're easier to remove, okay? We can just leave the milk sitting at say 60 degrees Fahrenheit and slowly the fat will rise to the top. If we did nothing other than to heat that container of milk from 60 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit, that fat would rise more rapidly because it would expand. That changes what we call then the creaming rate. Most of the time, that's to our advantage. Most of the time. In a semi-solid, such as a piece of cheese that's sitting out on the countertop, if you leave it there and let it warm up, it's out on a tray, it's been cubed, and it's there for a buffet tray, and it's out for a couple of hours, you start to look at it, and you'll see that it's starting to have beads of fat at the surface of all those cubes. Because as it warms up, the fat expands more rapidly than the protein matrix in that cheese, it finds its way out to the, through the path of least resistance and ends up at the surface. That becomes an issue. It's hard for us to prevent boiling off. We would consider that something that's somewhat unpleasant if you're going to the buffet and you have your cheese slices or your cheese cubes and they're oil on the surface, that's something that becomes a a negative in product presentation. We know exactly why it happened, because as it warmed up, that fat had a different expansion coefficient, the remainder of the system, and was allowed then, or enabled itself to move to the surface. In sour cream, it will do the same thing if you leave a container of sour cream on your countertop, If you leave it long enough, the culture starts to grow again. The culture starts to grow again, the pH drops. Howard, we can't hear you. He can't hear us. Okay.
<laughs> I can hear yeah. you. I don't know who's in class. Uh, Whitney is. I'm going to send her a text message quick. Okay. Thank you. I'm also in the dairy science building, so I could just go to the classroom and like knock on the door. Yeah, either way. We'll see. Looks like he's figuring something out. Yeah. Yeah, for a second there, I thought my computer froze or something. Yeah, I didn't know what was happening. <laughs> Technology. <laughs> oh, yeah. To work again now? Yeah. Okay, Ethan gave me a thumbs up. Well, nothing like not being able to tell how long the battery's gonna last. Okay, um, it's talking about the aqueous phase, fat globule membrane and its association. When the lipids, have even less association with the aqueous phase because the membrane isn't having that association, then the lipids are more likely to associate even more tightly with themselves. So they'll start to clump and cluster and grow even larger as far as the size of the fat globule because the fat globule membrane is not associating with the aqueous phase it's allowing it to stick together. And when we start clumping lipids together, they get even bigger, even less dense, and therefore they accelerate the speed at which they separate from the solution. Heat transfer coefficients are a term that's used in physics and engineering referring to the ability to move energy through a substance. You can talk about heat transfer coefficients 
for stainless steel. You can talk about heat transfer coefficients in water. You can talk about heat transfer coefficients through lipid material. Heat transfer coefficients through air. They're all going to be different. Pure lipids are quite substantially different than water. When the total quantity of lipid increases in an oil and water emulsion, when we go from, say, 4% milk fat in what is the milk sample to 10% in half and half to 18% in our sour cream blend to 40% in our whipping cream, the more lipid material is there, the harder it's going to be to get energy into and energy out of that solution. Because the heat transfer coefficient goes down. So when we're gonna pasteurize cream, we have to treat the system differently than if we were going to pasteurize whole milk or skim milk because the lipid is interfering with that heat transfer. So in order to actually get in enough energy when we're pasteurizing, our goal is to eliminate the pathogens. In order to get enough energy in there to eliminate the pathogens, First, we must increase the total energy input. We raise the temperature of pasteurizing. Secondly, we have to increase the time span that we're allowing for this to occur, or we cannot get the energy in. The lipid is prohibiting the energy transfer in to eliminate the pathogens. So every time we change the amount of fat in a given dairy product, we need to think about what that heat transfer coefficient does and adjust for that so that we can properly pasteurize our starting material before we go ahead and make our product. Okay, so the quantity of lipid changes our ability to input and remove energy. Another way to think about that, lipids are insulators. If you think about a walrus up in the Arctic, is a walrus skinny or is a walrus got a little bit more substantial? It's, it's fairly substantial, right? And most of that girth that it has there is layers of lipid material. We would often call that fat, right? Why does that walrus have it? To insulate itself so that when it's swimming around in Arctic waters at zero degrees C, 
It doesn't freeze to death. The lipid is an insulator. Works really well. But that becomes an issue in process because we can't get energy through the insulator. So heat transfer coefficients are a different way of saying that a substance can be acting as an insulator. Lipids are excellent insulators. Not only do they create issues getting the heat in because of their insulating value, but also because of the lipid, when it starts out cold, creates a higher viscosity solution. That higher viscosity solution also is going to be harder to get energy into. So until you get it up to a certain point when it starts to decrease in viscosity, it's even more difficult to get the energy in. So part of that energy transfer is impacted by viscosity, the majority by the insulating or the heat transfer coefficient of the lipid within the whole system. And it's a two-way street. It's not only putting the energy in to pasteurize, it's also removing energy to cool or removing energy to freeze. When we get into an ice cream system, the level of lipids will impact how the efficiency of the freezer might actually be working. The higher the fat in the ice cream mix, the more insulating value the mix itself has, the harder it is to remove energy, the more challenging it is to actually freeze the ice cream mix, all based on level of lipid, all based on how large those lipid molecules were because of their fatty acid profile. It all tying together for you, I hope. Okay. Removal of energy is important. One of the challenges that many dairy processors encounter once in their lifetime is that they believe that they have a tank sufficiently cooled and they shut the cooling off and they come back an hour or so later and their tank is above the legal maximum temperature. You cool the cream down because 60% of what you're cooling is in the aqueous phase, it cools fairly rapidly. Your Temperature probe is determining what's in its immediate area. So it looks like the solution is down to 45 degrees. But the remaining 40% of that solution is lipid material. 
which doesn't cool down at the same rate and holds on to energy more effectively once it's been heated up. We give it an hour or two and it will finally equilibrate. And here you are with a tank that's at 47 degrees. When the inspector's going by and goes, huh, your tank's at 47. That's not legal. You have to dump that product. And you go, but I cooled it down. It doesn't fly as an excuse. But you need to know why that is going to occur. Because the lipid does not cool at the same rate as the aqueous phase. So to keep yourself safe, cool it below the 45. Go down to 42 or 40 or 38 and leave the cooling on for another 15 minutes after you get there so that you're assuring yourself you don't end up in this situation. But many processors will tell you the tale of it happening to them at least once. Okay. Because the heat transfer coefficient of the lipid phase versus the aqueous phase is not the same. When we make a product like butter, we pasteurize the cream. To pasteurize the cream, one, we're getting rid of pathogens. Another reason we often pasteurize cream in butter production is to create a cooked note. It's a flavor appearance based on the temperature that we heated the product to. So we're going to heat that cream 180 degrees, at least 30 seconds, make sure that we've eliminated the pathogens. It's going to take a fairly substantial amount of time to get that lipid cooled back down. And not only do we need it to be cool, we also need those lipids to be able to re-establish their original arrangement. When they were warm, they were more liquid, less viscous, they were able to move around some, which is fine. But when we go to churn butter, if we were to churn it without removing all of that residual energy, we would end up not being able to harvest the majority of the fat because the phase inversion would occur too rapidly. That phase inversion is dependent upon input of mechanical energy to allow us to harvest fat in the churning process. Well, if we don't have some control of the energy content to begin with, our butter manufacturer has trouble.
we have to get that butter, that cream cool. This is probably more readily done in smaller facilities. In a very large facility, the challenge is to make sure you have enough storage tanks so that once you've pasteurized and put it in pasteurized storage, you can give it sufficient time to properly cool and recrystallize, reorient the fat itself before you start to churn, or you'll end up losing a fair quantity of lipid material to the buttermilk and not harvest it as butter. And that's contrary to why we usually are making butter. So butter manufacture ties directly back to the behavior of the lipid material related to input and removal of energy. Butter manufacture also then relates to the overall structure, the fatty acid profile of the original fat. That makes sense. So we have to be careful on how we get that energy in and how well we get that energy removed because the lipid is an insulator. It has a different heat transfer coefficient. It's slower at transferring heat than the walls of the tank, which are stainless steel or the water, or the glycol, or any of the other substances we happen to be using. When we're making frozen desserts, we need to give that mix some time to equilibrate. Typically, we will make an ice cream mix, cool it to what we believe is less than 45 degrees, and we need to let it have at least four hours time to age and equilibrate the energy from the lipid phase and the aqueous phase so that we have a uniform level of energy throughout that mix. Because if we don't cool it long enough, the lipid material is actually still retaining some energy. And when we go to freeze, we're trying to remove energy. Well, if we have a system where we're trying to remove energy to freeze, that the entire system we're trying to remove the energy from is itself at different levels of energy because we did not allow the lipids to properly cool, we will not get a uniform freeze. If there's still some residual energy in the lipid, we appear to have frozen the product but the residual energy from the lipid will 
melt or provide enough energy to liquefy some of those ice crystals right around where the fat possessed the energy. Then finally, as the overall system gets cooled down in the <coughs> static freezer, the hardening room, there would have been some moisture that was not frozen in the dynamic freezer. It migrates to where there's already an ice crystal. So if you try and freeze ice cream mix that was not properly cooled before you started the dynamic freezing stage, you set yourself up for icy ice cream. Larger, fewer ice crystals present because and only because you didn't properly cool the mix before you started to freeze it. Why do I bring that up? Because all of you will become facilities troubleshooters. Day in and day out, your product is wonderful, and one day something is wrong, and you go, well, why would it have done this? And you go back through your production records, and you find that your mix was only two hours in the tank instead of six before you started to freeze. Now, does that help you deal with the customer? Not necessarily but it helps you educate your employees so that it doesn't happen again, right? So this is one of the challenges and contradictions of frozen desserts. We most often assume that higher fat, higher lipid content frozen desserts are higher quality, and they can be. But if we don't handle them correctly, we create defects because we didn't consider the impact of the lipid and the energy transfer. That higher lipid level in a freezer has a different impact. That higher lipid level creates lubrication for the freezer barrel. You have much longer longevity, less parts wear in your freezer, if you're using high fat mix versus low fat mix, but it's more challenging to freeze and you typically have to slow down the freezer rate in order to obtain sufficient energy removal to prevent iciness in your frozen dessert. All directly related to the level of lipid in our product. Is that enough for today? Are we good? Your brain's spinning around yet? Okay. I think we'll stop there talking about lipids today. Reminding you that one week from today will be exam one, covering the beginning portions, reminding you about all the 
basics of chemistry, and then covering the concept of lipids. After that exam, starting 14th of September or so, we'll move on into the proteins in milk. So, all right, that's what I have for today.